But we are in Colossians 2 this morning. And over the past several weeks, we've been talking a lot about maturing and that whole process of maturing. And, and one of the ways to mature is to study the Word of God. Uh, and to do that, many of us need to be reminded and, and be able to take notes. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to, to learn and remember the keys that, that the Lord is giving us to maturing. In fact, it kind of reminds me, because right now Brandon is learning to, to write and he's, you know, write his letters and numbers and spell words, and he's all excited. And this morning he learned a new word, how to spell a new word. It was eat, because I walked up to him several times and said, E-A-T, eat, because he wasn't eating his breakfast. And then later he goes, Dad, I learned a new word. You want to know what it is? E-A-T. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, so do it, you know, so that was our conversation this morning, but, it, but it's been a lot of fun because um, he's starting to write things over and over, the same thing, over and over and over, he's practicing, he's practicing his handwriting, and it's improving, and it's great, which has is, which is really helped with his desire to read. And which, which is great for Lisa and I because we both love to read. We both love to, to learn, and we want that in our, our child also. And, uh, you know, so I started kind of going overboard on, on buying them books and getting them different things. And, you know, wonderful educational books like Pirates Love Underwear, you know. And if you ever want to take an alligator to school, don't. That's another great book. Uh, or the, the Day the Crayon Split, you know, just good books. But you see, these books are at his level. It's important for him to, to, to be interested in, and start those things at his level. Now, if he were in college reading Pirates Love Underwear, I would be a little concerned. You see what I'm saying? And that's like us. As we mature in the faith, we need to not be at the basic level anymore. Is, is I, think it's, uh, uh, I think it's Paul, as my mind goes blank on that, that teaches us that, or maybe it was even Peter, I'm not really sure, you can correct me later on which one it is, but that talks about milk and meat, that when we were baby Christians, we deserved milk, just like we're doing Grayson, we're giving him a lot of milk. Man, is he watching us eat. He will watch the fork from when we put it in the food and when we put it in our mouth, and he'll just stare at us. And it's a good thing. Because one day he'll be doing the same thing. He, you know, but right now he's getting milk. Because why? He's a baby. I can't feed him barbecued pork. I mean, as much as I love it, it's not good for him yet. The maturing process. Learning is the key to maturing. You know, I've also talked a lot lately about context. Knowing the context of what we're studying is important. Context within the, the paragraph, context within the, uh, the chapter, context within the book, and the context within the Bible. Where, where does this relate to another, another part of the Bible? And, and you know, all these things are, are important so we don't go off on tangents. So we don't go off on, on as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, uh, we don't start torturing the Word of God. We don't start twisting the Word of God. By being, you know, unlearned and, and not knowing the Scripture. So I thought I'd show you another technique of, of learning and studying the Scripture. Uh, because we've been in Colossians now for 14 weeks. And, and we've slowly gone through it. And, and sometimes when you go slowly through something, you, you kind of forget the overall or bigger picture, the broad scale part of the Scriptures. So I thought I would take us through the bigger part of what we've learned so far. 
We ended last time with, with some visual pictures that Paul gave us, uh, you know, about being in Christ. And, and we talked about the concept of, of kind of defying gravity. You know, Michael Jordan is the era that I grew up in, uh, LeBron James. You know, I mean, they, they seem like when they jump, they stay in the air forever, and they just defy gravity before they slam that ball in the, in the basket. You know, it's just an amazing thing. We look at it and we said, man, that, that, that just, they, it just comes natural for them. But for you or me to ever do the same thing, I mean, we'd have to work on it. And then after we worked on it, I, you know, it, it, for me, it would have to involve some machinery and some hoist to get me in the air that far and that long before I could slam it in there, you know. But it's natural for them. But now when, when we're in Christ, the things of God start to become natural in us. It's, it's like we don't have to work on them anymore because, it's, because the Holy Spirit is in us and, and already worked through that in us as we matured and all of a sudden we find ourselves not dealing with that same sin anymore or being able to, to direct or talk about God in ways that we've never been uh, before because the Holy Spirit has matured us. It's like us on a plane as we defy gravity. Do we do anything to get off the ground when we're in a plane? Well, no. The plane does the work. The machinery does the work. We're eating and sleeping, and some of us are scared to death, you know. Whichever works for you. Or we're giving dirty looks to the kid behind us that keeps kicking our chair. But we're defying gravity by being in a plane. So when we are in Christ, it is like us being in the plane. There's powerful forces of gravity trying to get that plane down. But the plane stays in the air because Christ keeps us safe. Now, it's probably not a great example considering there was a plane crash this week, you know. But I think you get my point. This is what we're learning in Colossians 1 and 2. That God has a plan for us to be in Christ. And Christ doesn't just bring the, you know, bring the plane. Christ is the plane. He's not just the pilot. He is the whole thing. He doesn't just bring the love to the table. He is the love of God. He is the plan for us. He exists in mercy. He exists in grace. And that is so important for our life. A beautiful study to do is to go through the Bible and see the different names of God that are there. It's a wonderful study if you ever get a chance to do that because you will see, you see the existence of who He is by His own names. What he accomplishes out of who he is. In Colossians 1.13 it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God does the heavy lifting in our life. We don't have to do the heavy lifting in our life. Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to, to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making uh, peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in, in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If we're in Christ, we do not have to worry about our blemishes. How great will it be to stand before God 
and praise Jesus because he's covered our blemishes. Wouldn't that be great? Think about that. You have nothing, nothing that prevents you from being in God and before God. Because if he hadn't covered your blemishes, how awful would it be to stand before God? You see, that's the juxtaposition. That's the opposite thing. Either we're before God without blemish, or we're before God with blemish, and which judgment do we get? See, God is massive. God is powerful. He's a holy God. I, you know, I'm sure that uh, my knees will be knocking before God. I mean, you know, he's, he's God. And yet, I will find myself still alive in front of God. And that's the thing I, I, that I tend, to, I, I tend to think that we forget. That God is the one that gives us life here on this earth. Because if we have no hope, then what is this life about? I have friends who, who, who are not Christians, and, and their life, I mean, their life is about weekends and, you know, partying and, and what can I get out of this life? And, and how sad is that in the sense of they're not alive. We have been given life by God. Do you feel alive today? Do you feel alive today? Okay, that was kind of a lame response. Let's try that again. Do you feel alive today? Yes. Well, then we ought to act like it. You know what I'm saying? In this world, we ought to be out there instead. Because I tell you, man, how many of you had something go wrong this week in your life? Okay. So a lot of hands go up. Because that's how life is. Things just don't go the way that I think they should go. You know what I'm saying? And yet, we should not walk around like going, oh, this week. Man, I'm so tired. I mean, and people go, and you're, you're a Christian and you're acting. I mean, and that happens week after week after. We should be alive in Christ. Christ says, come on to me, all you who are weary and weak. I will give you rest. Jesus didn't come to judge us. He came to serve us. And it goes on in Colossians 1.23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We have a responsibility as Christians not to drift away. If we allow this life to get a foothold or a toehold on us, it will start dragging us the other way. What do we try to teach our young kids? Junior hires, high schoolers, pick your friends well, right? Because if you don't pick your friends well, what happens? The world starts dragging you toward the world's way, right? So as parents, we're like, you need to you know, pick your friends well. You need to, to, uh, to think about who you're around. We have that responsibility to not drift away. So all that is chapter 1. Then we get to chapter 2. And he says, hey, listen, my purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have, it may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in which are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. It's amazing how the, the Word of God interweaves, with, uh, you know, interweaves together. 
We were just talking on Wednesday night about 2 Peter 3 and how we can be seduced by fine-sounding arguments. And Peter says that we need to be constantly on guard. We should be constantly looking and listening to what we are learning. Is it true? Is what we're being taught true? Does it, does it go with the other scriptures that are in the Bible? Or is this some, something that somebody's going off on a tangent on? Does it go with sound teaching that we have received? Because just like the plane that went down with the bomb on board, there are people out there, there are forces out there that want to bring us down, want us to get off the plane that we're on with Christ. Colossians 2.6 says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened to the faith that, we were, that you were taught. Overflowing with thankfulness. And this is really what we're doing in our church on Sundays and, and Wednesday nights. And our children's ministry and our youth ministries. And, and so if we're trying to, trying to give them good roots. So they're strengthened in their faith. So they grow up in strong faith. Because Christ should be the foundation of our lives. And, and so, we, so, that, that so much so that we overflow with thankfulness. And then Paul gives another warning in verse 8 there. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world than the, rather than on Christ. And he's saying, hey, hey, guys, pay attention. Don't let someone capture you with empty philosophies. High-sounding human nonsense. Human thinking. From the, you know, from the spiritual powers of this world, not of the heavenly world, this world. Apparently there's a, there's a point where we can be drawn away by some new truth. And, and if you find somebody who goes, oh, I found something new in the Bible that, that only God has revealed to me, you need to run away from that person. Because what they're espousing is not from the Bible. Because God has not revealed mysteries to one person. He's revealed the mystery to all of us, and that mystery is Jesus Christ. Don't let somebody say that, that, oh, you know, that Christian thing is so old and, and so boring. Don't accept that. We need to find the core of Christ, who Christ is, and we need to follow that. That's what we need to be following, not the traditions of man. To figure out what Paul is saying to, to the people in Colossae in, in AD 60 and how it relates to us today in 2015. Verse 9, he says, for, for in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You see, Christ is the complete deal. Don't let anyone ever add or take away from that. Don't let anybody, you know, change that at all. You don't go buy groceries and then take them to an all-inclusive resort, do you? You know, I'd love to do it all, you know, I, I, I'd want to do this one day. You just go and you eat, and you eat, and you eat. Man, I mean, maybe I don't need to try one of these things out. But, you know, they provide everything at an all-inclusive resort. You want a snack? Go get a snack. You want more food? You go just go get it. It's all included. You don't take suitcases full of food on a cruise. It's already been paid for, Right? I went on one of those. I came back 10 pounds. Yeah, anyway. We are complete in Christ. And he is in charge. 
We don't add, we don't take away from that. And he is against the forces, uh, the forces of darkness. Then in chapter 2, verse 11, he deals with Jewish law. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And, and the, Jews put, you know, the Jews putting the law onto the Gentiles, telling them that they had to be circumcised to worship God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 this is about the heart. It's not about the physical body. It's about the heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. What are you thinking? And this goes all the way back to Genesis 17. And this is where you start connecting the dots for the Bible. You know, you take one thing like, like her circumcision and, and go, well, wh- why is he talking about that? And you, you start to search, okay, where else is this found in the Bible? And Genesis 17, God commanded that the Jews be circumcised so they would be different from the world. In Leviticus 12, God commanded it also. But the meaning behind it was very, very clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That it was about the heart. It represents something profound. In fact, in Deuteronomy 36, he explains it. Or or 30 verse 6, he explains it. It says, The Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and live. And then Jeremiah 4, 4, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. See, it's about the heart. It's not about the physical part. And then he goes on in Romans 2:28 in the New Testament. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor, not, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is, one, if, if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code, such as man's praise is not from man, but from God. And then here in Colossians 2.11, Paul writes to the Jews and the Gentiles alike, people who are followers of Christ and says, in him you were circumcised and putting off the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in, in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised you from the dead. And again, kind of a side note here. If you're wanting to study more scripture, you know, those wanting to to mature, those wanting to go further in your study, take a word, take a passage like this and and figure out what's the meaning of it and start looking for that same meaning throughout the Bible and what else God has to say for it. That's the process of maturing and figuring it out. Where does this idea come from? Where did it start? Are there any other scriptures that talk about circumcision of the heart? You know, sometimes we, we pick a passage of the Bible and we just kind of feel overwhelmed. I don't understand this at all. We'll start looking where those words happen, the same words, in other parts of the Bible. It might help you to drive and to learn. Well, back to the Scripture. Paul takes this verse and says in, or it says in verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us of our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations, that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now before we read verse 15, I want you to understand, 
persecutions on the Christians at this point was on the rise. They were being shamed for their belief in Jesus Christ. In many ways, like we are today, we're, we're being dismissed by the media as just kind of, oh, is that really what you believe? Uh, you know, and you're just dumb or you're ignorant or you need a crutch to, to lean on to get by in this world. But for them, shaming was completely different. They were being shamed, and, and not too many years from this point, they would be shamed by being led into the Colosseums. Not just the Roman Colosseum, but many Colosseums to be fed to the lions or to fight to the death. Already kinda, they're already kind of seeing some of this and feeling some of this. I mean, three to four years later, Paul and, and Peter are arrested you know, and, 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 and killed, and, and Rome is, is feeling like something is up with these Christians, and we can't stamp it down. We have to do more. They'll be drugged through the streets. Really, a lot like Jesus was drugged through the street. He was shamed and naked. He was, he was chained. His clothing was gone. In the Middle East, you know, you took off the clothes of a person that was shaming them. You get them down to one garment. That was a huge shame for them. He was beaten, and his, his beard was literally pulled off in chunks. And the beard represents manhood. And, and we saw this recently in the, in the prisoner swap with the, you know, with the Taliban in the Middle East and stuff. Before they handed the person over, what did they do? They shaved every inch of his body. Now, as Americans, we didn't think anything of it. But all the Middle East, they filmed the whole thing. All the Middle East would go, <laughs> yeah, we shamed that guy. Because anytime, because the, the hair represents your manhood and so forth. And they were shaming him. When they spit in Jesus' face, they shamed him. They mocked him. All these are Middle Eastern insults. And here, here's your crown, O king. You call yourself a king. Let me put this on your head, O king. They're shaming him. And they nailed him to the Roman cross. And, and during this time, they would actually use three different types of crosses. And I didn't, I didn't find pictures because I didn't have time with the roundup and everything else. But, but really, you know, we, we love the, the, you know, the, the lowercase t cross. You know, it's one that we always wear and stuff. Um, to represent Christ and him coming off the cross and so forth. But most likely he was more on a style of a capital T cross that was used during this time period and, and there specifically in Jerusalem. But it doesn't really matter what type of cross he was on. What matters is that he took our sins with him and nailed it to the cross. And we forget that. You see, Christ was forced to carry the cross, the, the T-bar part, through the streets and the narrow alleys, through the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, which had many steps and it goes up and down and around and, and many twists and many turns. They did this to humiliate him. It's always done during the middle of the day they, or in the early mornings when, when most people are out. Then they nailed him to the cross, and the post was left on, you know, the, the main post would be left on the hillside, so there'd just be the stick sticking up all the time. And then they would take the prisoners, and they would lower the, the beam down upon it. Sometimes on the cross, there would be a ledge, either for the, for the feet or the bottom. And the reason for this is, was not comfort. It was so the person would die slowly. Because Naturally, you want to get a better breath, so you stand up. You use whatever you can to kind of raise your body up to get that breath, and it would prolong the death. 
Usually they would end up breaking their legs to, to, to help it along. But with Christ, he was already dead. He was crushed. But verse 15 is so interesting. Christ was not shamed on the cross. He was actually shaming them. He turned it around. It says in verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, here's the creator of the wood. Here's the creator of the metal that keeps him up there on that stick of wood. And he is disarming them. He is shaming them, not by the death on the cross, but by his victory over the cross because he rose from the dead three days later. They understood this in Colossae. They understood that Jesus did not come down from that cross alive. But he rose from the dead. And with him, you know, 300 years later, the Rome, uh, you know, Rome, the Roman Empire really fell apart, and Christianity had a lot to do with that. But Jesus was the one who was nailed, dragged, treated like a criminal. But now Jesus is the conqueror. He was the one, you know, he, he, was, he was touched. He was, you know, he ate with the people after he rose from the dead. He talked with them. He walked among them. He wasn't just a ghost. He appeared to over 500 people at a time and, and, and many others. Thousands of people saw him and talked about him during that time. Somehow, he was alive and he conquered death. And he walked through the very same streets that they tried to shame him by as he drugged the crossbeam of the cross through there. They tried to shame him with it. And he shamed the invisible powers. You know, we, we always, we like the, not that we like it, but, but as humans, we like the visual representation. We love the, the, the movies because it helps us understand that, you know, Christ going through, through the, the streets and, and dragging the cross and so forth. But there's so much more that we can't see. I wonder if the forces of evil... The world that we cannot see, see the spiritual world, I wonder if they were just all excited as Christ was going to the cross. We finally got him. We finally, yes, this is going to be it. This is our time. This is our day. This is awesome. He is going to be gone. And when he died, I'm sure they cheered. That was on Friday. Yet on Sunday, he rose from the dead. And they're like, what? Wait a second. What are you saying? He's alive? See, that same God is what brings life to us. He has forgiven us. He has healed us. He became the sin itself and then took it to the cross. See, God is timeless in his thinking. So all the sin that we have now was nailed to the cross back then. And that's a concept that, that a lot of times we forget about. So don't go to the cross and take your sin and take it back and keep it. You need to allow that sin to be nailed to the cross and stay. We need to celebrate now that we are in Christ. Because we have nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing to pay for. Nothing. It's already been paid. We are not a slave to sin. So we need to let our sin go. And I almost want to sing the song, Let It Go, but I won't. 
You know, there's th- there, there are those that think that we should be paying for our sin. Your sin has already been paid for. It's been paid for. That's why I'm saying that we should be more excited about being alive in Christ. Because we don't have that burden on us. Reality, we have nothing to pay for. And this is what verse 12 says for us. Having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And this is such a weird concept for us. Paul is saying that we were buried with Christ. And this is what baptism is all about. It represents what Paul is talking about right here. We were buried with him. And we were raised with him through faith. The power of God raised Jesus. And that same power raises us up also. Don't live as if this is untrue. Believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord is living like it is true. Do you catch that? Belief in the Lord is living like it's true. True that we've been raised from the dead just like Christ. We are alive in Christ. Verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. See, we need to, to make sure the accuser doesn't you know, uh, get us down. Because the accuser throws everything. Alan, look at your sin. Alan, I can't believe you said that. Alan, I can't believe you messed up like that. Alan, you did that same thing again. What are you thinking? Look how bad you are. And my response should be, well, I asked for forgiveness of that. Why are you bringing that up? And maybe, okay, let me go back to God. Maybe, you know, God, I, I know we've talked about this already, but, but God, forgive me of this. And then walk away knowing that I've been forgiving me. That he has forgiven me. And that he directs me to a path of righteousness. So I don't keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. Verse 15 it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over the Christ. This is like what Paul says in, in Corinthians 1. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdoms, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is why the world will keep telling telling us, literally, that we are idiots for believing. Because to them, it's foolishness. And unfortunately, it's foolishness for those who are going to perish. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Christ is so important. Any accusation, any sin that you have, any guilt that you have, any shame that you have, it was nailed to the cross. That's what Colossians 1 and 2 is saying. It is nailed to the cross. Anything the enemy would do or say to you, that would keep you from Christ, anything that would keep you down. You see, here's a strategy that is against us. The invisible enemy, the accuser, Satan, sometimes it's not even about the sin itself. Because many times it's about the shame. 
Have you ever done something in your life that you've been shameful for? I dare say most of us have. And that's what he brings up, the accuser, over and over again. You need to feel sorry about that again, Alan. Hey, don't, don't be happy. Don't have any joy in your life, Alan, because remember what you did? Remember? I remember. You should remember. Because you and I both know what you did. And so does God. That's what the accuser comes and says to us. If you feel like something is bothering you like that, then go back and confess it again. Because God is big enough to handle it. Lord, what I did was a big mistake, a big one. We talked about that. I know that now. So thank you of releasing me of that. Because don't allow the accuser to keep you in sin. Because because the sin is no longer in you. It has been taken away. Don't keep the shame around either. Don't allow the shame to stay. Because once sin is gone, the shame goes with it. That is living in Christ. You will hear people say, I don't have any right to tell my child to do such and such because I did it. You will hear people say that. And my response is, yes, you do. You have every right. In fact, you have the responsibility to do that. Because you don't want them to go through the same thing. You don't want them to go through the same, same difficulties that you went through. So you need to hold them to a higher standard than what you were held to. That's what's called parenting. That's a good thing. Don't fall into that trap of, of keeping the shame on our own lives. Uh, you know, therefore, we have no right God has given us the responsibility to try and to get it right this time with the children. And with His grace and with His mercy, you can raise that child in the way that the Lord would want them to be raised. That's the key. Look at it this way. Just because you married a drug addict, you know, I'm just taking any example here. You can put anything in there. Alcohol, drugs, you know, womanizing, manizing. I guess, is there... Man, I, okay, anyway. Just because you married a drug addict doesn't mean that you want your child to marry a drug addict, right? Well, you went through it. Why, you, I have no right to tell them. No, no, no. You would say, no, no. Don't go down that road. I went. Th- no, don't do that. Then why do we feel that way about other things? See, our job is to protect the children. As parents, as friends of the parents, our job is to protect the children. This is why Christ took our sin to the cross, so we wouldn't have to go through hell on this earth. So we would have a chance to live in and through Jesus. The devil shames us so we don't raise our children the right way. We need to teach our children to do the right things, to love Jesus, and to act accordingly. Now, they may not get it now. They may even resent you now for doing that. But later on, they will get it. And they will thank you for it. Because the devil wants us to be like a dog who buried something. And it goes back out in the backyard and digs it up and makes a huge mess and then drags it back into the house. And then they hide it on the couch. Then after a while, they'll drag it out from underneath the couch, and then they'll go put it somewhere else. And they keep hiding the same thing over and over. 
That's what the enemy wants us to do. Dig up the things that we've already done, the sin that we've already done, and go, well, you should be shamed about that again. Why don't you drag that sucker right back out? Make your mess, because you should have shame. For many of us, it's not the sin that's the issue, it's the shame. We are ashamed of certain things in our life. And the accuser wants to keep you down because of it. To say, you, you are not worthy. And that is so sad. This is what I want you to give over back to God one more time. What shame do you have in your life that you need to go before God and say, take this away for the last time. I don't want to dig it up again. It's not my bone. You take it, Lord, and you keep it. Give it back to God. Give it back to God. Because we need to hand those things over to God, and we need to walk out a new person. Because God has taken us, you know, taken our sin and made us new again. God has taken that and created a new person within us. So walk out of here today with that on your mind, because you are new again. You are new again. Amen? We need to be alive in Christ. We need to do the, be out there and be, you know, doing the, the things, you know, like the, uh, the, the things that are, that's our Father's business. We need to be out there living like we're Christians and, and being mindful of what God wants us to do instead of sitting out there going, well, I can't tell such and such about God because I've done this and they know about it. Instead, we can go to him and say, you know what, I screwed up here, but God forgave me. So let me tell you about the God that forgives people. You know, I've said this before uh, a while back, and when I was in youth ministry, there was a young lady that, that wanted to help out in the youth ministry, but, but she'd gotten pregnant and had an abortion, and then she got pregnant again and got married and ended up divorced, and, and all this throughout her, uh, you know, through her life, and she's sitting there going, I can't help kids because look what happened in my life. And I said, no, that's exactly why you should be helping kids. That's exactly why you should be going before them and going, look what I did in my life. I didn't make good choices here. I made this bad choice, and that led to this bad choice, and that led to this bad choice. And what I want you to do is to not make this bad choice. Because God can forgive you, but I went through hell on earth during that time. You see, God can use the things that have been shamed, that Satan would shame us in our life, to turn us around and say, you know what, go out there and tell him. Go out there and tell him you did that. And then tell him about my forgiveness and my grace in your life. Tell them that I'm the God who saves. I'm not the God who accuses. Because the guy who accuses is not a God. And we need to remember that. Remember that. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't we stand and and we'll close this morning. And like I said, we're getting out here early this morning because of the can't, couldn't get the place heated up enough. But uh, thank you for being here. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I pray that we start to understand that shame is not something that we should take in our life. That is something the devil, the accuser, Satan puts in front of us and tries to keep us down. I pray that we realize that our sin has been already nailed to the cross. There's nothing that we should be paying for. Now, yes, we, we understand there's certain consequences of sin, Lord, and, and that's just a part of life, but, but the shame, the guilt does not have to be one of those consequences. 
Because once we ask you for forgiveness, it is taken away. And we do not have to hold on to it anymore. I pray that you teach us how to to release these things. Lord, and I pray for for anyone that's standing right now that, that is here today, that shame has overwhelmed a part of their life, that you relieve them of that. That through your spirit, you help them hand that that shame over to you. And then you make them new again. You make them alive in Christ. Give them the joy that that they want. And and, and they they certainly don't deserve, yet you are willing to give that joy anyway. We thank you for, for going to the cross and taking our sin there. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may He make you alive in this world. Alive enough that other people notice and say, what is different in you today? And that we have the opportunity to tell them about you, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.